Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a study in the book of Ecclesiastes called Unsatisfied, The Search for Meaning. We're learning that chasing after satisfaction apart from God will leave us empty. Thanks for joining us. So like we do so many Sundays, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes this time. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 is where we're going to spend time today. And uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, we say this every Sunday as well. We have some in the seat back, uh, hopefully near you, a black one. It says NIV, you can pull it out. It's page 464. The message title today is called Better Wisdom. And we're in this series called Unsatisfied as we make our way through this Old Testament book called Ecclesiastes. And uh, so as you're turning there, let me just mention several things that I want to remind you of as we study the book of Ecclesiastes together. First of all, uh, I want to remind you that Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. Now, we said this several times, but you, you, you wonder why. It's because when you know what a part of the Bible is, their goal is, then you can appreciate it more. So when you read the Old Testament books of the law, you know it's about his instruction, his laws. When you read about, you know, some of the different narratives or the gospels, you know that it's talking to you about Jesus or some particular event or story, historical thing that happened. But when you read wisdom literature, you know the goal is that we might become wise. Now, it doesn't mean we automatically become wise by reading it, but that's the goal is for us to become wise. So if you're following along, Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature that pushes us to think and choose. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature in the Bible, like the book of Proverbs, that pushes us to think and choose. And by that, I mean choose and take a certain action. It doesn't mean we just think about it some more, but it ultimately leads to a change in our action. We choose a different way as a result of what we've heard. And so, again, if you're following along, what's wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to think life through and to make better choices. Wisdom is the ability to think life through and make better choices. Uh, it, It has a realistic perspective. It doesn't deny the hard realities, uh, but it means that when you're miles from a church building, when you're miles from your mom and dad, if you were a kid, that you still have this ability by comparative judgments to be able to go, this is better, this is the way to go rather than this one. And again, it's this, it's this growth that not only knows that, but it's the growth that takes that action. So that's wisdom. Now, I bring all this up because I just want to, again, lay the, the groundwork because today uh, Solomon's going to teach us in a way that's very surprising. He doesn't say what I would have expected him to say. It's definitely not what worldly wisdom would teach us to think. And it's definitely not the actions necessarily that worldly wisdom would teach us to take. But I want to read a story to you that I've never forgotten. Some of you have heard in history about a a statesman in England named William Gladstone. He was the prime minister for a time. He was a lay leader in the Church of England in the 1860s and 70s. Let me just read to you about a conversation he had with a young man one day. A young man once visited Mr. Gladstone and told him that he would like to study law. Yes, Gladstone replied. And what then? Then I hope to be admitted to the bar of England, he replied. Yes, Gladstone said, and what then? Then I would like to serve in Parliament in the House of Lords, the young man replied. Yes, Gladstone answered, and what then? Then I hope I will be able to retire and happily live out the rest of my days. Yes, Gladstone said, 
and what then? Well, the young man replied, then I suppose I will die. Yes, Gladstone soberly answered, and what then? I have no plans beyond that, the young man replied. I've never thought any further than that. Then Gladstone sternly replied, young man, you are a fool. You need to go home and think life through. Wisdom is thinking life through. It's taking the long view, not just the immediate. It's taking the long view, making decisions, choosing the better way and acting accordingly. This is wisdom. And this is why God gave us Ecclesiastes, not only so that we could understand what's meaningful and satisfying in life, but what lasts, what really matters in the long run. So if you're following along, here's what I want you to see today is that Solomon's answering what's good for a person in life. That's the question he's going to answer today. What's good for a person in life? Where do I get that? Well, last week, Steve talked about the dangers of wealth. There's obviously some very good things about wealth. We'll see that even in our passage today. Money can do some good things, but there's some dangers with it. So if we're looking to that for satisfaction and meaning, it, it can fool us. And so you just need to understand that. But at the end of the chapter five and six that he focused on last week, at the end of that chapter, here's the question. And you'll look at it with me. Uh, it's the last verse of chapter six, verse 12. Here's what it says. For who knows what is good for a person in life? During the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow. Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? Do you see that question? For who knows what is good for a person in life? Now, this is what Psalm's going to talk about. And why do you and I need this message? Well, here's the reason I need this message. Maybe it's the same reason you do. We live in a world where people are singing to us. They're advertising to us. They're whispering to us. Friends are counseling us. Hey, go this way. This is a really good way. And what we find sometimes is it's not always a really good way. So you and I can be fooled. That's why we need wisdom. That's why we need wise teachers. That's why we need God's wisdom, not just worldly wisdom. And so I hope that this message will help us face reality. And no matter whether people are around us or not, we'll be able to become wise and know this is the way to go. And I, I don't have to keep having someone always tell me I'm growing in wisdom myself so that I can take that action even when I'm not in a church building. So let's pray that God will teach us today. Now, Lord, I know that it's possible for us to gather. I'm thankful for the enthusiasm and joy and excitement we can have together. But long after this service is over, let us grow in wisdom. Let us be people that don't just think we're wise, but let us become people that are wise, like you always intended for us. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so we're going to look at what Solomon teaches, what's better. And um, again, uh, again, it's surprising what he says. So let me just read this first statement in the notes there of that section. If you're following along, here's part of why it's so surprising. Basically, in chapter 6 and 7, what he says is prosperity isn't always good. If you're following along, prosperity isn't always good. And adversity isn't always bad. I don't know about you, but if I was picking a list of the things I wanted to have happen in my life, I would like to keep them all prosperity, <laughs> right? The problem is, is that's based on a misunderstanding 
of life. It's a simplistic understanding. The prosperity isn't always good for our souls. It's, it's good, but it's not always good for us in the long run. Adversity isn't always bad for us. Are you learning this? Uh, interesting story. I read this years ago, and I found myself thinking of it again this week. Uh, Alan Peterson, J. Allen Peterson tells this story. He says, a Chinese man had one son and one horse, all he owned. One day, his son left the gate open, and his only horse wandered out, never returned. So all the neighbors gathered in and said, that's sad. That's bad. You lost your horse. But the wise little man said, how do you know that's bad? Maybe that's good. How do you know? The next day, that horse wandered back home, followed by 12 wild horses. And they came in. He closed the gate. And he had 13 now instead of none. And all the neighbors gathered in and said, that's good. That's good. You've got 13 now. He said, how do you know that's good? Maybe that isn't good. How do you know? Sure enough, the next day, his son was trying to break one of those wild Mustangs. And it threw him, broke his leg. And all the neighbors gathered in and said, that's bad. That's bad. He said, how do you know that's bad? Maybe that's good. How do you know? And the next week, a Chinese warlord comes through the country, takes every able-bodied boy off to war, never to return them. But he can't take this boy because he's got a broken leg. So you never know. That's why you trust God. Hmm. So again, part of the reason why we need this passage is, I don't always know what's best for me. I don't always know what's good and what's bad. And I need God's wisdom. And so as we talk about that, he starts right out in verse one. Let me read it for you. Here's the first sentence. A good name is better than fine perfume. A good name is better than fine perfume. We've been singing a lot about name today. Name. So some people close their prayers in the name of Jesus. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What do we mean by that? Do we mean just that we like the sound of their name? What we mean is that person's character. So when you pray in the name of Jesus, part of what builds your faith is you say, I'm not just praying in anybody's character. I'm praying in your character. And you are a tested one. And I know your character is trustworthy. I pray in your name, your power, your authority, your strength, your goodness. I pray in your name. Wow. So if you're following along, a good name or character is better than smelling good. That's how I've summarized it there, okay? A good name or character is better than smelling good. The idea here is, is that, you know, you can use fine perfume, aftershave, whatever. It'll wear off. But a good character, that's what'll last. A good name or character, that's what it is. John Wooden, one of my favorite coaches of all time, coached the UCLA basketball team to 10 championships in the NCAA. And this is fascinating. Look at what he used to tell his players and what he lived by himself. Be more concerned with your character than your reputation. Because your character is what you really are, while your reputation is merely what others think you are. Now, friends, think about this. We're living in a day and age where more and more people are being told, go for that 15 minutes of fame. Project an image that looks like you're a godly person instead of actually becoming one. Get people to think well of you and you're a success. John Wooden is saying, no, no, friends, no, that's a shortcut way to life. Go for character 
more than reputation. See, character is what you are in the dark. Character is what you and I are when no one else is around. What are we really like? That's what's good, is a good name. Is that what you're going for? Is that what you're letting Ecclesiastes teach you? Is that what I'm letting Ecclesiastes teach me? That's the goal. Now, interestingly, uh, are you interested? I, I, I wanted to give you a Hebrew lesson today. Are you excited about that? And I hesitate to do this because then you'll think I'm smart, and I'm not. Uh, I just took a year of Hebrew in seminary, but today I thought it was appropriate because this is something even I can understand while I used to sit befuddled in Hebrew class, okay? So here it is. The word, when he says, what's good for a person in life, he uses a word, tov. Can you say that with me? Tov. Okay, now, you may not have ever heard this word before, but I bet some of you have, because the Jewish people still speak like this in Yiddish. So uh, sometimes at a wedding, they'll say, Muzzle Tov. You ever heard that? Okay, if you've ever heard it, and by the way, if you haven't been to a Jewish wedding, I haven't either, but if you've watched my big fat Greek wedding or something like that, then you've heard, okay? The point is, is if you hear someone say, Muzzle Tov, what they mean is, Muzzle, fortune, Tov, good, good fortune. They always do that when they're celebrating. So the word tov here means good or better. Now, if you read through these 12 verses on your own, you're going to notice that that word good or better shows up a lot in these verses. Why? Because he's interchanging that word tov to mean those different things throughout. So I want to just show you what this sentence that I just read to you is. In English, it's several words, right? A good name is better than fine perfume. In Hebrew, it's four. Okay? So here it is. Tov... Shem, that's the word for name. So good name. And then mishshemen. Uh, mish is a kind of preposition that means than. And shemen is oil or perfume. Tov. So tov, shem, mishshemen, tov. Why is this important for me to be talking about? Part of what Ecclesiastes does that sometimes we miss in English is that when Solomon was teaching this, he taught it so that little children, even that learn these verses, could walk away and go, Tov Shem Mishemen Tov. Tov Shem Mishemen Tov. A good name than fine perfume. Hmm. And they would think about it longer. And he said, if that's the goal in your life, remember this. That's worthwhile. That's worth going for. That's better. That's good. Now, what he says, what he says in the next few lines is shocking to me. It's not what I would have expected. He goes on and says, okay, now if you're interested in character, then you'll look at things differently and you will not call something bad that can be called good as far as what it leads to, okay? So here we go. Let me read the rest. So the second half of that verse, and the day of death better than the day of birth. Excuse me? It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Excuse me? For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration <clears throat> or sadness is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. Now again, this is like, this is like contrary to what our natural mind would say. And he's not saying, it's wonderful when these things happen. He's not saying that. He's just saying is, 
Don't discount what these things can lead to in your life if you're interested in character. They don't have to be a waste. So if you're following along, number one thing he says, that's good because of what it can produce in our lives. Sorrow, sadness, and loss are better teachers than pleasure. Sorrow, sadness, and loss are better teachers than pleasure, than feasting or partying. Those things may produce some happiness for a while. They don't last like what sorrow, sadness, and loss can produce. Now, I would hate it if anybody leaves today and you go up to somebody that's going through sorrow, sadness, or loss, and you go, by the way, did you know that it's a good thing this is happening to you? That is a misapplication of this text. Part of what Solomon's doing is he's teaching as a wisdom teacher, and he's saying, now, think this over and take it to heart. But he's not going and jamming these verses in people's minds. And we just have to be careful of that because it always makes a difference when a person decides this from inside themselves after they hear things like this, okay? So these aren't things to go around and just, you know, it's okay, you know, that kind of thing. We're not interested in shallow, friends. We say we're fighting shallow in, in certain ways, and part of it is by being humble. So this calls for humility, okay? But notice that the reason why is because it can clarify, if you're following along, it can clarify, purify, and unify us to live with purpose. It can clarify, purify, and unify us to live with purpose. What does it mean? Like if someone came up to you and said, how would you live today if this was the last day of your life? When you hear a question like that, all of a sudden it focuses you. It all of a sudden makes you go, oh, well, there's some things I might do differently. It just focuses you. It kind of clarifies things. Look, look at what uh, Moses wrote in Psalm 90, verse 12. I think we have it in two translations here. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a what, friends? A heart of wisdom. What is it saying? The reason why I teach us, what's it say? I think the New Living Translation. It says, teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. In other words, it's saying, you only have so many, how are you spending them? If I don't think about like, how many I have, then I squander things. If I just go, well, it'll always be like this tomorrow and the next day, and then like, but it focuses us. So at times, sorrow, sadness, loss, suddenly brings us right up short and helps us face our mortality. It, it can cause us to go, wow, there are some things in life that I, I've been avoiding or denying or not facing. Huh, wow. And uh, look at this, uh, what uh, David wrote in Psalm 119, verse 71. He says, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. Is he saying affliction is good? No, he's saying it was good for me to be afflicted in the sense that it brought, it led to something that was good. Hmm, what's all that mean? Well, I was thinking about Something that um, Bill Hybels writes, he says, one man put it this way when he suddenly found himself on a hospital bed. He writes, I came to realize I no longer really cared for what the world chases after, such as how much money you have in the bank and how many cars are parked in the garage. As it says in Ecclesiastes, chasing after these things is like chasing the wind anyway. Suddenly, the rat race became vanity to me, utter vanity. I felt naked before God. If I died, 
I would take none of this stuff with me. All that really mattered ultimately was my relationship with the Lord, my relationship with family and friends. If it weren't for the loss of my health, I could have wasted the rest of my life chasing achievements and acquiring more transitory things. Bill writes, I'd say his loss served him well, wouldn't you? His loss simplified and clarified his values. It burned through the haze of confusion that blinds people to the differences between the major league concerns of life and the minor league concerns of life, the eternal concerns and the temporal concerns. As painful as a loss might be, loss often produces a simplifying and clarifying effect. It clarifies. It purifies and refines us sometimes too. King David, who had killed Goliath and experienced many victories in battle. When he sins with Bathsheba and then covers up the death of her husband that he had engineered, uh, he eventually prays a God-honoring prayer later on. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. And he admits, he says, when I hid and, con- you know, conceal what I had done, my bones dried up, but now I just admitted to you. And it, was, it had a purifying effect, and he suddenly realized that that failure, that loss, uh, it was the loss of his son out of that relationship that humbled him and brought him back to a place of refining. I've seen that happen. Um, there was a lady in our church in Iowa what a go-getter she was. She was very successful in her business. Uh, uh, and she uh, was one of those people who was always doing things in our church. And then she and her husband lost their only son when he was 23 years old in a tragic death. And we all loved her son. And, and so months later, I'm with this gal talking. And um, she said, you know, Jeff, before Ron died, I couldn't understand why people would grieve so long. I remember thinking, come on, come on. You need to get going. You need to move forward. And I was just so impatient. And now, every time I think about how I looked at people like that, it breaks me. I was so insensitive. I didn't understand. See, it had a purifying effect in her life. She was letting it have a purifying effect in her life. And the last thing is unify, unify. The Bible has this strange phrase called the fellowship of suffering. Fellowship of suffering. And you can tell when people have suffered and when they haven't, or when they're willing to enter insensibly to suffering when they're not. And um, yesterday, I was here for a funeral. Some dear people in our church lost their 41-year-old daughter of cancer. And I was thinking about the fact that a number of other people that loved Ruthie had all come back for her service. And, and uh, th- we talked about how it was kind of uh, a youth group reunion because when they were in high school, they had all helped each other follow Christ. And in the midst of that really sad and painful time, we saw what really matters. And it's relationships. It's people. More than all the other things and how we live our life, we want to make it count not just drift along, float along. And we want to do it to the glory of God. But it was in a hard thing that none of us would have invited or wanted or asked for. But God can still do some good in it and out of it if, if we're teachable and if we look for his hand 
even in these things that are bad in many ways, but they can also produce good. Interesting. The second thing that he talks about is a rebuke. So let me read verses 5 and 6. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless or hevel, fleeting, transitory, short-lived. So if you're following along, taking a rebuke to heart is better than listening to a fool's song. Taking a rebuke to heart is better than listening to a fool's song. And the idea here is that a rebuke, I mean, how many of us, by the way, are hoping today that someone's going to rebuke us? I mean, again, I would not, when I was thinking, what's good for a person in life, I would never put rebuke. Because I just, I don't like them. But God says, is there's something for you in a rebuke from a wise person if you'll take it to heart. It's better and it's longer lasting in its value than all the, all the levity, all the ha, 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 all the songs that basically tell you, do whatever you want. Those things don't last. Those things don't lead to wisdom. And so it uses this picture, the crackling of thorns under a pot. And again, he's using something that sounds like nettles under a kettle, you know, kind of thing. He's, he's making it rhyme in Hebrew. But the idea here is, is if you've ever tried to burn thorns in a fire, They'll produce a little fire, but they burn out very fast. They, they don't last. They're not like solid wood. And therefore, uh, a fool's laughter, fool's songs, fool's way of approach to life may at the moment seem easier and more attractive, but it doesn't last. Therefore, you don't want, you, no, come on. Look for people that'll tell you the truth because they care about you. So I was thinking this morning, my wife and I were talking about this as we were getting ready, and I said, you ever, can you think of any rebukes that have served you well? She says, I, I can. She said, uh, when I was a little girl, she said, I had this, uh, I was always daydreaming and stuff, and so she said, one time we were in a children's choir there at church. That's where she and I met, was at this church in Elgin, and she said, the choir director was trying to talk to me, and I was counting uh, the different things on the ceiling and just looking around. My mother had gotten there early to pick us up and take us home, and so on the way home, she said, Patty, you need to listen when the choir director is speaking to you so that you'll know what's going on. And she said, I, I didn't necessarily like her telling me that at the time, but she said, the other night when I was in choir practice and Brad was trying to get our attention, I remembered that. And she said, I've noticed that that's good for me to do that. See? And a rebuke can do that and it can make a difference in your life. What is a rebuke? A rebuke is a word of correction, a word of saying, if you keep going that way, that's not going to be well. What did William Gladstone do with that young man? He rebuked him. He said, you have not thought life through. You're a fool if you keep doing that. Come on. Act differently than that. Choose differently than that. Think it life through. Come on. And it served that potential, had the potential to serve that guy well. See, we can waste our sorrows and our sadness and our loss. We can waste rebukes. Or, if we're wise, we can listen, take them to heart, choose another course of action as a result of them coming into our lives. We don't necessarily want them to come to our lives. They're not always fun. They're not easy. They aren't even necessarily good in many senses, but they can become good if we'll receive them differently. Uh, and why? If you're following along, a rebuke can correct and lead us from shallow to mature. 
A rebuke can lead us from shallow to mature. If you look up here, some of you may say, well, you know, I'm not sure I want a rebuke. But if you and I, different people have rebuked me over the years. And when they have, again, especially if they were a wise person and I took it to heart, there was always a nugget of truth there for me. If I said, Lord, what do you want me to learn from this? And when I was younger, I used to like go, you hurt my feelings, kind of thing in my heart. I never do that in front of people because that's embarrassing. But I'm just saying... (laughs) Is that, is that I would feel like that. I'd go, that wasn't, that, that would, they're not a nice person. Why are they, why are they, come on. They should just compliment me. But then if I go, God, what's the nugget of truth in there for me? What do you want me to learn? It helped me. And to this day, I think I'm probably better and deeper than I would be if I just kept blowing them off, see? And it can help us fight shallow and fight. I just want to be a person that experiences prosperity all the time. No, adversity can help us if we'll receive it differently. And so, um, do you know that uh, Proverbs 29 says, if you and I blow off rebukes, it has a penalty to it? Whoever remains stiff-necked, stubborn, after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. (laughs) They just keep ignoring. They just keep going. It'll lead to self-destruction. Interesting. The Bible says that one of the ways that God keeps us healthy spiritually is through the preaching of his word. 2 Timothy 4, here's what it instructs uh, pastors to do. Preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. How we need healthy, caring rebukes at times. Amen? So, here's the next one. Here's the third. Not only sorrow, sadness, and loss, and rebuke, the third one that we wouldn't have expected is finishing is better than starting. Being patient, not angry if you're following along. Finishing is better than starting. Being patient is better than getting angry. So let me read these verses. Verse 7. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Now, what is this trying to say here? Because this seems like it's from out of nowhere. Extortion and bribery are shortcuts. Extortion means that you're trying to take money dishonestly instead of working for it. Bribery is getting a payoff from someone under the table or extra money. The idea is, is those can corrupt you. They're quick and easy ways to get that, but they will corrupt you. They will not build character. Now look at what it says in verse 8. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. That's fascinating. Finishing is better than starting. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. What, what is the wisdom here? A lot of times, it's not saying, by the way, that how you start doesn't matter. It's just saying that how you start doesn't matter as much as how you finish. Again, comparative judgments. So uh, why is, what is it saying? Uh, again, I, have, uh, I remember my wedding 35 years ago. I stood before God and I said, I promise to Trish. Now, at the wedding, it was a happy day. It was easy to say, I promise. In the last 35 years, that's gotten tested. Not as much as it's been tested for Trish, but it's been tested. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. 
Now all I'm saying is, is that, is that when things are happy and fine and enthusiastic, that's one thing. But what's going to matter is, is character growing over a period of time. There's something about sticking with something. There's something about staying with it that you learn valuable lessons that if you don't. And so these are the things the Bible's trying to teach us, not just about marriage, but about life. Let me just give you two illustrations. Um, one, when our kids were little, and, and as they were growing into teenagers, how they handled money, the decisions they made, friendships they picked, all these different things. You know, if you've been a parent or even if you've been an aunt or uncle, you know that guiding people sometimes is a challenge. So I remember that one of the ways I tried to serve this up to my kids was to say this. All right. So I can remember when Jeremy was a teenager and he kept not keeping track of his money. And so he would get these draft notices and stuff like that, $2 here, $20 there. And I was just go, okay. Here's the whole goal. The goal is for me as your father is to help you build character so that long after you're out of the house, when no one else is around, you'll be able to make wise decisions and take wise actions. So what that means is right now, the way you're handling your money is a character moment. When they would say, why do I need to do this homework? This is a waste of time. I'll never use this. You ever had that conversation? What we would say is this is a character moment. How you handle this responsibility will either build character muscle or a character myth. In other words, it's up to you. Your character will either get stronger, you'll build more muscle, or you'll actually get weaker. This is a decision. You got to keep learning these lessons and they'll actually build muscle. And again, they, they didn't really like these lectures at all when they were younger, okay? But they've written me since and said, thank you for urging me to go after character rather than easy street. Because now I'm seeing it. See? And I don't always, I'm just like them. I don't, it's easy, by the way, it's easier for me to tell my kids that than to do it myself. But I've tried to take that to heart myself. Now, here's a story. A guy that mentored me, his name was Jerry. He had a son named Jeremy. Kind of had influence on why we named our first son Jeremy. But anyway, when he was, Jeremy was little, we were spending time around them. And he said, when Jeremy was little, little, we used to, we noticed that he loved saltwater taffy. So he'd come and say, can I have some saltwater taffy? So he said, we, we decided to start trying to see if he was maturing in wisdom. So he'd say, Jeremy, we'll give you a piece of saltwater taffy now. But if you're willing to wait till tomorrow, we'll go to Toys R Us and buy you that toy you've been wanting to get. He says, when he was little and really immature, guess what he always did? Took the saltwater taffy because it was now. But as he matured, he began to realize that the bigger payoff came through waiting and going through that pain of not getting what he wanted right away. And there's something about this. There's something that Solomon's trying to say is finishing is better than starting if you're after character and wisdom. And we live in a world that no longer is able to delay gratification or doesn't want to. And we've got to learn to swim against the stream. Amen. And so notice this is that it can produce endurance, joy, that we miss otherwise. It can produce endurance and joy that we miss otherwise. Some of you have seen James 1, 2 through 4. This is a great reminder. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it. You don't have to. You can blow it off. But consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance muscles have a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. In other words, you'll be able to go through life 
built up and able to have that kind of strength of character to face whatever comes your way. You'll be amazed at times at how you're able to handle something differently than you used to be able to because you're learning endurance and patience and stuff. And so these are just such big things to remind us for in a world that's constantly tell us, go for what you want now. Do the easy thing. And God says, no, 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 that's not how character will come. It's just not. But notice what he says in verse 11 and 12 about wisdom. If you're following along, wisdom protects and energizes those who choose it. Wisdom protects and energizes those who have it and who choose it. Hebrews 12, 11, by the way, my brother, missionary in the Philippines, loves this verse. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. What a difference. What a difference. Wisdom, when we have it, what it produces in our life. And if, so it, it protects us. Look at verses 11 and 12. It says, wisdom like an inheritance is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. In other words, those who are still alive. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge or wisdom is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. The message paraphrase says it like this in, in um, uh, Ecclesiastes 7.12. Here's what it says. Um, at seven, eight, there we go. Wisdom energizes its owner. In other words, it, it literally helps you go into a day not as petulant, not as afraid, not as ambivalent. And so it just helps us. I was thinking about this. Jesus taught us wisdom. The Bible says is fix, by the way, when you're thinking about wanting to grow in character, think about Jesus. Fix your eyes, the Bible says. Hebrews 12, 2. Fix, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. What, what's, what's that going on here? Why did Jesus, we sang earlier, he left his father's throne, all the glory, all the prosperity of that, and he came down to earth, became a human being, took on the form of a servant, and then the most servant act of all, he endured the cross. Think about this. To have the weight of the whole world's sin on your shoulders, to have the Heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit turn away from you for six hours on the cross, was there anything more excruciating that he could have gone through for us to bring us back to God? But the Bible says is that while that was terrible, for the joy set before him that was waiting on the other side. He endured it. And therefore, he wants to help us when we're going through things to be able to know that there is a joy, there is a peace, there is an endurance that can come to us if we will follow him through these different things and go his way. So how do we bring this home? Uh, I want to just read something to you briefly. A, a soldier understood this. And so listen to what he wrote. This was found on him uh, when he fell in battle near the end of the Civil War. Here's what it says. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. 
I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything I hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all men most richly blessed. Wisdom helps us see differently so we can choose differently and act differently. So as we close walking wisely through life, let me just ask you to reflect with that, with this, uh, on this with me. First question, am I on the what's better or the what's easier path? Am I on the what's better or the what's easier path? Uh, this last week I was at Sam's Club. I was thinking about the end of the matter. It's better than the beginning. Patience, better than pride. And, and uh, I, I noticed in myself something. I noticed that I'm, I, I don't know if you have hurry sickness like I do, but I noticed when I, I looked at all the lines and I saw, okay, that one looks the shortest. So I got in that line and then I saw, oh, this person doesn't know how to check out. Okay, I'll go to this line because <laughs> this looks like a better choice. So I get there and just as this person's about, they have to call a manager and I go, okay. So then I move to a third line. As I'm standing in the third line, I watch the people from the first line pass me and I'm going, I could have been out of here. And the Lord just said, that may seem like a simple thing, but you're a fool. When you live like that, you look like a fool. And I realized he was right. And that's the way sometimes I go in and I realize it's because I wanted the easier path rather than just going, it's not bad for me to wait. I can wait. I can wait. Settle down, Jeff. Wait. But it was the easier path. See, I found myself taking the easier path. Notice, where's God inviting me to be teachable and patient? Where's God inviting me to be teachable and patient? That's how I want to wrap this up today. Let me just give you some specific ways. I'm going to ask you to bow your head in just a moment and let him speak to you and you speak to him. Is there a situation at work right now that you're finding it hard to be teachable and patient? Is there a situation in your family is there a situation with your health? Is there a situation with your finances? Is there a situation with a friendship that he's putting his finger on and saying, I want to teach you a better way so that you can choose wisely. You can act differently on this than you are. And, but it starts with us saying, Lord, I want, would you please teach me about this? Show me how to be patient and not jump out of this situation or take the rash decision I was going to take. Would you mind bowing your head and just giving God a moment to talk to him? And the reason I want to ask you to do this in silence is because silence is often something we avoid, but it's one of the ways we have intimacy with God. So think and pray, if you would, in this silence. Jesus, thank you for not taking the easier path. Thank you for choosing the better path, even though it included the cross. As we walk through this next week, would you show us how to fix our eyes on you, knowing that you understand everything we're going through in even a deeper way than we do, and you can make us wise if we'll listen to you and be teachable and patient. Thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes, God. We pray that it will not be wasted on us. In your name we pray, amen. Just want to remind you there's always someone down front after the service to pray with you. God bless you.